Every week, journalists at the University of Florida College of Journalism and Communications report important stories for the people of North Central Florida and beyond. Florida has an incarceration rate of 870 people per 100,000 adult residents, which is greater than the national average. We got out of the car because we couldn't drive to their house because the road was flooded. And House Bill 117 came about. It would just provide um, benefits for any law enforcement officer who died in the line of duty or needed those paid time off benefits. This is The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host today, Sarah Mandile. I'll take you through the strongest reporting coming out of our newsroom and a discussion with the journalists who write these stories. Let's get into the stories from this week. For many formerly incarcerated people, getting out of jail is not the end of their worries. One program is looking to change that. Just Income Gainesville is a new program that is offering a guaranteed income to 115 formerly incarcerated Alachua County residents. Producer Kristen Moorhead spoke to WUFT reporter Nora O'Neill about how this program will help the community. Can you tell me a little bit more about this program? Uh, Who runs it and what do they do? Yeah, so Just Income Gainesville is a project out of Community Spring, which is a Gainesville nonprofit. And Just Income Gainesville is working to provide a guaranteed income to 115 formerly incarcerated people or people who have been impacted um, through the justice system. And so it's a pilot program. It's part of a study with the University of Pennsylvania Center for Guaranteed Income Research. How did this program come to be? Who started it and what is the goal? Yeah, so it is a study, and the goal is basically just to see how providing a guaranteed income to people after incarceration can can benefit their lives. So basically, there's going to be 115 participants, and each of them are going to get $7,600 over the course of one year. So they'll get a $1,000 payment the first month, and then $600 um, each month after that. And it's no strings attached. They can spend it however they like, but they're invited to participate in um, parts of the studies, such as doing interviews, completing surveys, things like that, to kind of see how that's... um, benefiting their life after they leave jail or prison. What is the selection process for this program? How are they picking who to give this money to? Yeah, so there's um, kind of a specific qualification. You have to be an Alachua County resident. You have to have been released from state prison or county jail in Florida or from a federal prison or put on felony probation by a judge after May 31st. So kind of within the last six months. And then out of Everyone who applies that meets that qualification, it's just a completely randomized lottery system. You mentioned it was a study out of the University of Pennsylvania. Are there any other cities or areas that are participating in this study as well? I'm not sure about the specifics with this University of Pennsylvania study, but there have been similar pilot programs to this across the country. So there is a group called Mayors for Guaranteed Income, which Gainesville Mayor Lauren Poe is part of. And they basically kind of look at all these guaranteed income pilot programs across the country, look at the efficacy of them. Um, In Stockton, California, there's been a similar no-strings-attached guaranteed income program that was actually really successful. And researchers found that 
Participants were able to pay off their debt, take care of their families, and that the pavements didn't prevent individuals from doing things like seeking work. Talking a little bit more about the story that you wrote, can you walk me through the process of reporting on this story? Who all did you talk to? Yeah, so I started by reaching out to Just Income Gainesville, where I talked to Kevin Scott and also Tequila McKnight. And both of them work for the Just Income program, and both of them are formerly incarcerated. So Tequila McKnight, for example, got out of prison in 2014 after being there for three years. And she told me that if she had this type of money when she had gotten out of prison, her life would be completely different. She said it's very hard. There's a lot of barriers to reentry after leaving prison, um, just legal fees. And also it's hard to get a job with criminal a criminal record. Um, so she was really great to talk to. I also spoke with Gainesville Mayor Lauren Poe who said that um, this type of program is important, but he's looking forward to, you know, national programs or long-term programs that provide a guaranteed income to people. And these types of pilot programs are helping to build that body of research that can prove that it's a good idea to implement those, those programs nationwide. I also spoke to Kara Gross at the American Civil Liberties Union of Florida, and she was also telling me a lot about how there's barriers to reentry after you're leaving prison. Um, and another thing she brought up is that uh, programs like these and guaranteed income programs actually save taxpayers a lot of money. It costs over $30,000 a year to incarcerate one individual. And this program provides them with a little less than $8,000 a year. So it really does save communities money. What is the ultimate goal of this program? Where where do they see it going and, and what are they hoping to achieve through through giving formerly incarcerated people a guaranteed income? So in the short term, it's definitely just meant to, you know, help these people, help them get back on their feet when they get out of prison, kind of get their life back in order, pay for legal fees, help them to get jobs, um, things like that. But long-term, like I said, it's really part of this bigger study to see how guaranteed income programs can impact communities. So um, one thing I mentioned in the story is that guaranteed income is different from universal basic income, which people might be familiar with from Andrew Yang's 2020 presidential campaign. A universal basic income is money that's given to every citizen, regardless of, of how rich or poor they are or who they are. Whereas guaranteed income is targeted. So, for example, this one is targeted towards people who have been through the criminal justice system. Um, but the ultimate goal is just to build this body of research and kind of see how this can help communities or hurt communities, just the, the impact it will have on them overall. How does this program fit into the larger picture or context of Florida's justice system and, and the incarceration system in Florida? Florida has an incarceration rate of 870 people per um, 100,000 adult residents, which is greater than the national average, which is 750 people per 100,000 adult residents. So criminal justice is something that's really on the forefront of a lot of people's minds in Florida. Um, I, Kevin Scott was also telling me how the system is disproportionately affecting people of color in Florida more than other states even. And I think programs like these just, they put more focus on rehabilitation and helping people rather than, um, you know, punishment for crimes. Not that that's not a component, but it really helps, helps keep people out of jail once they're out. And I think that's a big focus moving forward in the criminal justice system among activists and even people who are working in the system. Is there anything else you'd want to add that you think I didn't get to in this interview? 
Um, yeah, just a bit more specifics about the program. They send a letter out to people who do qualify for the program, but if you're an Alachua County resident and you think you may qualify and you didn't get a letter, you can contact Just Income Gainesville and they can help you fill out an application. So they're helping 115 people overall or giving them this money, um, but it's going to be in two kind of sections. So the first application period started November 10th, so Wednesday, um, and it, it goes through until December 1st. But then another people, another section of people will be chosen from January 19th to February 9th. So um, if you know someone who might want to apply for the program now, you should have the reach out to Just Income Gainesville, or they can do that later in January if they want to apply for that kind of second um, process. That was producer Kristen Moorhead talking to WUFT reporter Nora O'Neill about a new study that will give guaranteed income to formerly incarcerated people in Alachua County. We'll be right back. Behold the shepherd tone. The Tinkerbell effect. Hillbilly humanism. The Overton window. Hyper objects. The Bill Gates problem. The Zuckerberg delusion. Times are changing, and so is our vocabulary. Apodophobia. The public trust. Parasocial relations. The anti-bandwagon fallacy. Monopoly and monopsony. Let On the Media be your guide as we explore the future together. Sunday morning at 10 on WUFT 89.1-90.1. You're listening to The Rewind. I'm Sarah Mandile. Residents in pockets of Marion, Levy, and Citrus counties have been fighting back severe flooding following heavy rains as far back as August. Despite the high water debilitating daily life, they say they've received no attention from local or state government. Producer Melissa Fato spoke to WUFT reporter Julian Rush, who visited these neighborhoods to see the flooding for herself. So I joined this Facebook group, Denellen Word of Mouth, and I just had a, a lot of people responding to my initial post, and they were telling me, like, first it was with the internet, and then I got this tip about the flooding issue, and people were sending me pictures, and it was clearly very severe. Um, so I covered the internet issue first, and then I moved on to the flooding. So Kenny Eunice was one of my key sources for the story. And he welcomed me out to his neighborhood in Graceland Shores, which is in Inglis, which is in Levy County. And so I kind of, I started off the story wanting to only do Marion County, but then I realized like, oh, this is multiple counties, might as well include them all. Um, and I think previously there were some stories done on Citrus County, but you know, they were already covered. So I figured I would do these other two counties that had been kind of left out. Um, and so I went to Inglis, talked with Kenny, and it was severely flooded. Um, and he even told me that this was when the flooding had gone down. So he was using fences around the neighborhood to kind of mark where the water had been. And it was up to my chest. So it was about like four feet of water. And then he was letting me know that it was flooding septic tanks, which was causing like health, a health hazard for residents. And then basically that septic water was flowing into the lake that's in their area and it was causing algae blooms which has been a pretty prevalent issue lately and they were saying that 
it was affecting the fish and all this stuff. Um, and then I also, the same day I met up with Tony and Cheryl Rosado and they moved to Denellen, which is in Marion County about three years ago. And their neighborhood was extremely flooded as well. Um, we got out of the car because we couldn't drive to their house because the road was flooded. So Tony drove up in his lifted truck. It was this huge truck and we had to climb in and then they drove us around their neighborhood and the water was coming up. I want to say halfway up his tires and he has like the big mud tires on his truck. The Rosados and Mr. Eunice said that the flooding began as a result of the raining that happened in August. And then the water has been slowly evaporating, but it's still pretty high. Um, at least it was high when I went there. And it's a, more than a couple of feet when it gets bad. Every source I talked to said it could get up to like four feet of water. In what ways is this flooding also been detrimental to people's health? Okay, so Michael Hogan lives in Graceland Shores and his entire property, basically the way he described it is he has these kind of ditches and then a canal surrounding his property. So it creates what Kenny called a moat. So he was surrounded on all sides. So when I talked to him, this was after finding out that the water was septic. I asked him like, are you worried about your health because you're walking around septic water? And he was like, oh, I'm extremely worried for my health. He was like, thankfully nothing has happened yet, but me and my dog were constantly exposed to this dangerous like water basically, you know? And there's bacteria in there. I mean, it's, it's really unhealthy living standards. And the issue of wildlife. I mean, there can be snakes or alligators in the water that can be a threat as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, Tony and Cheryl actually showed me pictures of like the, the alligators in their neighborhood currently. They have one that they regularly see driving down one of the flooded roads. I mean, you have property damage, you have the risk of septic water and bacterial infections, and then you have alligators and water moccasins, which are extremely dangerous animals up on your property. You referenced this NPR investigation um, that was released in September that has been a hot topic since its release um, that found that foreclosed homes sold by HUD have been disproportionately located in flood-prone places. And many times the owners don't know that they're buying a home that's flood-prone. And that includes some of the places that you reported on. Can you elaborate on that? So I looked up HUD and then I looked up Inglis, which is where Kenny lives. I didn't even mention his specific neighborhood, which is Graceland Shores. The first result on the page of listed properties available was on his street. So I was, I was a little gobsmacked. I was like, are you serious? So I, I reached out to the HUD office. I reached out to Dr. Alicia Scott Ford and kind of asked like, Hey, are you doing your due diligence? Like, are they being let, like, are you letting them know that they're in a flood zone? You know, what's, what's going on here basically. And I never got a response. So Kenny Eunice and the Rosados, none of their properties are HUD, I believe. Um, not a thousand percent sure, but they mentioned nothing of that. So I just want to make sure that's out there. Yeah. I, I asked them because I was like, well, did you guys know that you were buying into a flood zone? And they were like, no, there was no mention of it whatsoever. So you mentioned that many of the people who you spoke to have tried contacting their elected officials, the county, the city, um, different utilities, even the governor 
Can you um, elaborate? So I did get a respond, response from Mandy Roberts. I did not get a response from Mayor White because I was deferred to Mandy. Um, I contacted the emergency management crew in Denellen. Um, so that, that's the emergency management director, uh, Preston Bolin. I never got a response from him. I contacted the Marion County Office of the County Engineers Road Section, and I did not get a response by press time when I did the story. For Levy County, I contacted the County Commissioner, John Meeks, and I got no answer. I contacted Nikki Freed from, and she's the Commissioner of Agriculture for Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, no response. And then I contacted the mayor's office in Ingles, which is Mayor Michael Andrew White, and got no response. So this story was a little tough. I cast a really big net. Probably this is the most sources I've ever contacted for a story. Well, my last question is, what's next for these people? I mean, if they aren't receiving attention from their local governments or the state government, what ways do they have to alleviate the situation? I asked that actually. I was like, what are you going to do if you're not getting help? And basically they have to wait for the water to go away on its own. Like they have to let it evaporate for however long that is going to take. And for that depth of water, it's going to take a while. And the amount of property damage that happens during that is beyond me to understand. You know, I, I, I have no way of understanding the kind of damage that happens to roads or erosion to property during that time, but they're, they're stuck until the water disappears on its own because they don't have people to help it disappear. Right, but then that doesn't even solve the problem because what happens the next time there's a major rain? It might go away, but it's not a solution. Right, and so basically they have to enjoy the few months that they have without floodwaters and maybe try and prepare for next year, but it's floodwaters. It's not a hurricane. You can't shutter up the windows and be like, oh, no water can get in now. It's going to get in if, unless you put your house on stilts or get raised tires, you know, there's not much that they can do. was producer Melissa Fato speaking to WUFT reporter Julian Rush about ongoing severe flooding in areas of Marion, Levy, and Citrus counties. To watch a video produced along with this story, visit WUFT.org. Big ideas are reshaping our world, from our jobs. If they're paying you way more than you expected to get, ask yourself, what is it exactly they want you to do? to what we eat. That message that we've finally made the sweet that your body wants. Yeah, that ad changed the world. New ideas come to life every week on Innovation Hub. Sunday morning at 11 on WUFT 89.1, 90.1. Welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Sarah Mandile. And now to our last story. With the Florida Spring Legislative Session in the next coming months, more eyes are on Tallahassee. 
One piece of legislation looks to bring relief to first responders and their families that have been deeply affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Producer Ariana Asperu speaks with Fresh Take Florida reporter Kristen Bausch on her story about this bill and what it could mean for those on the front lines. Your story is about legislation that would provide disability or death payments to first responders and their families that were affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you tell me a little bit more about this bill and kind of where it's currently at in this legislature? Yeah, so... The bill was proposed by um, Representative Elizabeth Betterhoff um, of the land, and it was to make sure that first responders and law enforcement officers who died from COVID-19 would either when, you know, they were quarantining for two weeks that they were getting paid time off benefits, or if they died in the line of duty from COVID-19, that their family would receive um, death benefits. And the reason for that is because some cities, they're self-insured, and so, like, they don't really necessarily provide the benefits for COVID-19. So, for the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office and the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, which are the two that I talked to, they are considering them as, like, in-line-of-duty deaths. So, when I spoke to their PIO, they basically said that these deaths hit really hard, you know, as any death would, but because it's COVID-19, it's somewhat unexpected. But yeah, they just mentioned that they were in line of duty deaths. So I think that does translate into what benefits family would receive. But if for whatever reason, a sheriff's office or police department didn't count it as that, then that's where like the struggle would be a little bit. And so The original version of the bill was House Bill 53, and it had this language in it that said an emergency rescue or public safety worker may be required by his or her employer to receive the vaccine. Um, But later that bill was withdrawn and House Bill 117 came about, which basically completely eliminated that section. It would just provide um, benefits for any law enforcement officer who died in the line of duty or needed those paid time off benefits uh, when they were quarantining and that was just like only if they could trace it back through like evidence that it was caught in the line of duty. The main example and like the inspiration from the bill was from Sergeant Justin White who died in August. Um, He was with the Port Orange Police Department and like they had a suspected concussion that he got in the line of duty and then when he went to the hospital he contracted COVID-19 and eventually died and so but his family was originally denied benefits so that's kind of where she represents that area and where like the inspiration came from. In your reporting you talk about how this specific legislation intersects with the issue of employers mandating vaccinations for COVID-19. Can you talk to me and run me through kind of how these two relate? The original bill had this entire section saying that a vaccine might be needed. Um, And then with the updated bill, they eliminated that entire section. And when I interviewed Representative Betterhoff, she brought up this idea that it might cause more public harm if that part were to be still like in force, because nationally, like sheriff's office, police departments, 
the ones that were enforcing like vaccines, a lot of people were dropping off the job. And she said with such short staff already, it'd be like less people to serve. I don't know. It's just kind of interesting. Like there was just like a little excerpt that I included where just a few weeks ago, Governor DeSantis said he wanted to offer law enforcement officers who relocate to Florida and who have never previously worked with the state a $5,000 bonus to work here, whether or not they were vaccinated. And this kind of came after the conversation that police offices and police departments were enforcing vaccine mandates. So I, I can't speak for what Federhoff was like thinking, but for changing the original bill to cutting out that entire section, you can kind of see how it'd be maybe in their minds, like less likely to pass. And so the story brings in a few key issues from legislation and then also those personal stories with people that you spoke with. Kind of how did you get the idea for this story or, or where did you come across it? In August, um, this story was originally supposed to be just kind of a running list of every officer or like first responder law enforcement who died from COVID-19. Um, so it started out with literally just a spreadsheet and Time kind of passed by and I wasn't hearing back from many family members, so I couldn't really find that impact. And then I just stumbled upon a tweet um, that had the link to Federhoff's bill. I was like, okay, this seems pretty relevant. I interviewed her, I talked to her about it, and it just kind of switched angles because like it kind of shifted to here's what their families might have to deal with and here's like the after effects of it. And what were some of the challenges you faced reporting it, if you had any? So for one, definitely talking to the families. I, I couldn't even, even in the interview with Ruby, like I didn't really know exactly how to navigate that, you know, because like a loved one died. But I do appreciate just how willing she was to speak to me. Another thing was hearing back from a lot of the police departments and sheriff's office that had a higher number than the ones that I mentioned. I think it's like Jacksonville's in there and another one's in there, but those were like two of the ones that didn't have as many people or employees who died from COVID-19, but I called, emailed maybe a dozen and like only got those two to come back to me. Um, yeah, and then I just overall, like the angle completely shifted and I thought I was just going to have like this memorializing article, um, but the deaths kind of started decreasing and I was like, oh, I'm not really sure if this is relevant anymore. But I think having the Federhoff's bill like angle in there brought it together because that's like the stage we're at now, like they're not dying as fast, but they're still dying and there's still after effects of these deaths and these times off. Is there anything we can expect uh, in the future for this? Is there any kind of developments that you're looking out for as you reported this story? On the House bill, it's being considered by the governor's operations subcommittee in the House. And then there's an identical bill filed in the Senate. Um, and that was filed by Senator Joe Gruders of Sarasota. Um, and so that basically means that the House and the Senate can work on the bill concurrently, since the bill has to be passed in both chambers before the governor can sign it. Um, but that won't be in the upcoming session. It'll be 
uh, in the one that starts on January, so the bill can't be voted on until January. That was WUFT reporter Kristen Bausch talking to producer Ariana Asperu about a bill that aims to bring relief to first responders and their families. Make sure to join us next Sunday, where we'll be showcasing the best stories coming out of WUFT News. The Rewind from WUFT News is produced by Ariana Asperu, Sarah Mandile, Kristen Moorhead, and Melissa Fato. Our executive producer is Sky LeBron. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. I'm Sarah Mandile. Thanks for listening. <laughs>